0: Hello, this is Ted Przelski. Welcome to another episode of Words and Work. We're going to get right into this because it ran a little long. This is going to be with uh, State Representative Pamela Powers Hanley, who's also a member of the National Writers Union. Thank you. All right, we've got Pamela Powers Hanley on, and uh, she is a state representative, uh, actually my state representative. Um, And I she actually lives in my neighborhood, which is, uh, of course, to her credit, because all the quality people in Tucson live in our neighborhood, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, the other thing, she is actually a member of the National Writers Union, and uh, I guess the proper way to talk about your civilian job is that you're a, an editor of a, a medical journal or several medical journals, am I right?
1: Right. I'm uh, currently an editor with the American Journal of Medicine. And before I joined the Arizona House of Representatives, I was managing editor of the American Journal of Medicine for several years. But yes, I've had a had a long uh, history in corporate communications. And I have a, a background in journalism. My degree is in journalism from Ohio State.
0: So after after Ohio State, what what was well, actually, before Ohio State, let's talk about that. What actually made you want to study journalism?
1: Well, I I went to a public school in a very small town in northern Ohio, in Amherst, and we had really, really good teachers. We had very good English teachers in particular, so they encouraged me uh, to write, and so I was interested in writing, but I was also interested in languages. I took four years of Spanish and four years of French in high school, and so my idea when I went to college was I was going to go into languages, and then I figured out that there were a whole lot of people who spoke Spanish better than me, and French was not necessarily in demand, so I thought, well, maybe I'll do something different with, and uh, I went to a Muskingum College for a year and then transferred to Ohio State, and when I saw the course offerings to the journalism school, I thought, this is what I want to do. I was already, uh, I grew up in a political household. I was very active, uh, I always read the news, and so my idea was that I was going to be a newspaper reporter. And I was on, I was in the news ed track. Uh, i We also had to learn photography, we had to do, have darkroom skills, but the turning point for me going from the idea that I was going to be in news to switching over to corporate communications was in 1972, I was taking investigative journalism at Ohio State, and the Ohio State has uh, the Ohio State Lantern is a daily newspaper that is produced by the journalism students, mm-hmm. and we were supposed to produce the election day coverage in 1972, and that's when Richard Nixon ran against George McGovern, and one of the other students and I got the uh, cake job of covering the McGovern Shriver campaign in the state of Ohio and traveling. With the national press bus, and I was like, "This is going to be so cool," you know. I mean, I was all in it. I was a, you know, heavy supporter of McGovern at the time, and but it opened my eyes to a darker side of journalism that I was not ready for when I was 21 years old. There was so much sexism. Uh, my um, traveling partner's name was Bridget. Bridget and I were on the bus with the national press corps. It was all men all much older than us, and we were like targets on that bus. It was really very uncomfortable, and the only other woman there was a woman who worked for Time magazine, and she was not treated well either, and so uh, I had a great time traveling and writing about the McGovern-Schreiber campaign and interviewing Sergeant Schreiber in the back of a limo and stuff like that, but it made me think a lot about journalism and whether or not that was the right career for me. So after I graduated, I actually got a job as an editor and I learned graphic design and I learned more about printing and that kind of, you know, I used other skills that I learned in journalism school.
0: You know, it, it's, it's funny because, I mean, yeah, they always the the I and I'm trying to remember if it was the name of a book or just a saying that they, they always said the boys on the bus, you know, and that's kind of how it was. Right.
1: It was definitely the boys on the bus, you know, and they, you know, this was the hippie era, right? And so we were had to wait one day for Sergeant shriver to show up, and we were in downtown Cleveland, and they're like, "Oh well, let's go over here and get a drink." It's like ten thirty in the morning. They're all drinking. They're offering us drinks, you know. I very barely, barely had turned twenty one, you know, and it was it was really surprising. And uh, like I said, it, uh, I, it was something I didn't expect. I was a feminist. I was into the Equal Rights Amendment. I thought work had progressed more than it actually had, but so I learned that, you know, in my first job, my first job, I ended up suing them for wage discrimination. I was hired as an editor and I sued them for wage discrimination when I found out that the guy who had the job before me did not have a journalism degree and was paid twice as much. So I won. <laughs> I didn't get a lot, but I won. So it was a hard path.
0: Well, it, it was actually probably. Because from what I understand about jurisprudence in that area at the time, that uh, it was, you were probably lucky that that was such a cut and dried case.
1: It was. It was very cut and dried. Uh, This other woman and I sued the company. Uh, We were sort of forced to quit uh, during the the, uh, investigation. But one of the best days of my life was when a young black lawyer from the Ohio Civil Rights Commission walked into that organization, put his business card down on the receptionist desk and said, I'm here to see your personnel records. And what they found was that there were women who had never gotten a raise without a raise on the minimum wage. There were all, some of them had worked there for 40 years and only got, were still making minimum wage. And there were jobs that were not open to women, the organization had about two or three hundred employees. There were two black people. Uh, one woman was a very light-skinned black woman who worked in accounting. The other, the guy, was the janitor. I mean, widespread sex and race discrimination was opened up by just two young editors saying, "Hey, we weren't treated fairly." So that place had to change.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and, and we'll get into how much because I, I mean, these are stories. I mean, my uh, my my mom. Tells me stories about her being in the world in, in academia, which you'd think would be more, you know, open, but it's not. You know, back you know back in the early seventies too. Um, and uh, but you know, I I, I do want to because you brought up the name Sergeant Schreiber, and and I, you know, he's someone that I've admired from afar. I've met his son, but you know, what was it? What was he like? On a personal basis. And actually, before you talk, you know, because maybe a lot of people don't know who he is, but if you could talk a little bit about him.
1: Right. Well, besides being McGovern's uh, running mate, you know, he was married to one of the Kennedy daughters and, you know, in the 60s growing up, you know, uh, during the Kennedy administration, That whole family and Sergeant Shriver, they were all, they were celebrities. And so I was really, I was kind of awestruck. Uh, Bridget and I were in the back of the limo with him. Unfortunately, she was running the camera and I don't have a picture, but he was so nice to us. He was so engaging. And here, you know, here we were, two 21-year-old college students, you know, with our little pads and paper and asking him questions and getting quotes. But he was just really, really nice. One of the things that was really something when we uh, went to Cleveland to, to go to the uh, McGovern Schreiber headquarters, it was like in an industrial area and there was like stuff everywhere. I mean, you can relay, you've been to the Democratic Party headquarters. People were making phone calls and stuff like that. And then in contrast, the Nixon headquarters was in a bank downtown, you know I mean, it was gleaming. It, they, you know the slogan was reelect the president. I mean, it was night and day of uh, the energy between those two campaigns and it was very exciting to to be part of that.
0: Yeah. Um, so, uh, now you, you, you obviously, you know, you studied journalism, but it, it, but you went into corporate communications. It's a very different, I mean, I shouldn't say very different because I mean, there's a lot of people that move back and forth and, and, uh, you know, could you talk a little bit about your career in that?
1: Yeah, I actually, uh, in, in Ohio, after I left the place that I sued, I was a professional photographer for of several years and worked for a design agency, and so that was kind of cool as kind of a bebop and trendsetter photographer at the time. But it was really when I went when I moved to Arizona that I got my big break in public relations. Uh, I moved here in 1981, and I saw an ad in the newspaper in 1982 for a uh, information specialist and listed you know, bachelor's degree in journalism, writing experiences, photography, darkroom, knowledge of printing, graphic design. It was like, well, that's a job for me. And that's when I worked started working down in Benson for Arizona Electric Power Cooperative. Mm -hmm. And so that was really my my really big start. Uh and then I traveled around uh Arizona photographing and interviewing people, you know, our um service in our service area for Arizona Electric Power. And uh it was interesting. And, you know, then went on to, um, I had my own business. Uh, after that, uh, my boss told me that I had to choose between my family and my job. And she expected me in my seat at Benson at 730 in the morning, even though I had two small children and a husband who worked in Tucson. And I said, well, I'm choosing my kids and my family. And I started my own business. And so I was a freelance writer and photographer for many years. And again, you know, sexism propelled me forward. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, I might as well go ahead and ask you about how that informed your later activism and 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 your political career.
1: Well, definitely, you know, I mean, I've been a strong proponent of the Equal Rights Amendment. And, you know, ha- having suffered, you know, many uh, instances of, you know, wage or sex discrimination in the workplace over the last 50 years or so in the, in the workplace, but also, you know, um, you know sexual harassment you know i worked at the cancer center and i had a full professor you know give me a little spanking on the bum one day in my office and i turned around and gave him the biggest evil eye he's ever seen you know and when i complained they said well he's got a reputation you know and so uh it's it's everywhere and um i i would like to see these things change and i think with the me too movement and more awareness things are changing slowly but you know, I don't want to see my daughter and my granddaughter suffer through the same things that my mom and I did.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because I mean, you know, I was up. Actually, it was only a couple weeks before everything shut down. I went up to the legislature with a group of union activists, and you guys found a backdoor way to bring up the ERA that day. Um, And what I thought was interesting was, I mean, a lot of stories from you and other women representatives. I think a lot of your male colleagues kind of gave you guys some room to do that and didn't jump in on it. But the thing that was funny to me was hearing from some of the people who were opposed, um, kind of denying that this ever happened to them. And, and to me, I was sitting there going, well, lucky you, I guess, because I this seems to be a thing that's happened to every woman I know that's worked that's been in a workplace which guess what it's the 21st century so that's everyone now so I you know I mean how frustrating was that and do but do you feel like you got anything accomplished by getting the stories out or
1: I I think we accomplish a lot when we get those stories out and I, I understand what you're what you're referring to. And I think when I was listening to those stories from some of those other Republican women legislators, it was like, those were stories about privilege. You know, they didn't have issues because they had more privilege than I did or more privilege than than other women do. And so I'm glad that they didn't have those issues, but I don't know a woman who has not had, you know, sexual harassment or at least wage discrimination or finding out that they're being paid less and them not having recourse. I mean, we, we could have gone farther up in our case, but chose not to because there was such a lag time between what Ohio was doing with the OCRC and what the EEOC was trying to do. They were, they were three or four years behind in all those cases. And so um, I just hope that there's more justice for women and minorities and, you know, gay people and, um I'm a kumbaya kind of a person. I grew up in the hippie era. What can I say? I
0: mean, if, you know, what, I I mean, I, I, you know, you don't, it's always hard. And I I know that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm getting old enough now that I talk to younger people who are getting involved and I, I say, well, you know, it's better now than in my day, you know, and, and, and of course I, that makes me sound like an old guy, and I don't want to do that. But where have things actually improved in, over the last few years? And, and, and um, you know, the other thing I'm curious about is, is how much progress has been made in the last few years because of Me Too.
1: Well, I think there's been quite a bit of awareness raised regarding Me Too, and I've been cheering on some of these, uh, you know, some of these convictions that have come up with it. I mean, I think we have a long way to go. I mean, we see that in particular on social media where uh, women and minorities are really targeted sometimes, especially women of color. And so there, there's a long way to go, but me too, I think, did quite a bit to bring things forward.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, back, you know, 10 years ago, I had a, a blog that I was writing about politics and, 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 uh, There was a woman I'm sure you're familiar with her, Donna Greathouse, you know, had a blog that was no less strident, no less uh, biting than mine was. Or no more biting or strident than mine was. But she had just this bevy of trolls that would write her constantly. In the meantime, I had two people. um, uh, and, And one was... I mean, as far as trolls go, was quite lazy. I mean, maybe every few months he would write something to me and that would be it. And, you know, in the end, I knew what the reason was. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, she was a great writer and she hit all the right targets and everything. But the only difference was her gender, you know? And, and um, yeah, so there, there is this kind of weird thing online where, certain men feel they can be feral, I guess. I, I don't know. And, and I, I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't even get what the sport of it is. It's like, I I, I wrote a nasty letter to someone. Oh, well, good, good job. <laughs> you know, but uh, so, but, but, what, what, you know, um, so let's, let's go ahead and talk about your career in the legislature. Cause this is going to be, I think, I think you've already, have you already announced your electoral plans to the world? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Cause I, I wasn't sure if that was just me because I'm, you know, we're such good pals, uh, but, but you are not planning on running again.
1: So, right. I'm retiring.
0: Yeah. So you've got, um, this will be your last session. So what do you hope you can accomplish?
1: Yeah, this will be the end of my third term, and um, I turned 70 last summer, and I decided that uh, I was going to pass the baton, you know, hopefully to somebody who comes along and asks questions and doesn't take anything at face value up there, because that's the thing you have to do. And so, um, yes, for this last year, I actually have just been reassigned to as ranking member for the Health and Human Services Committee. We've had a number of Democrats and a couple of Republicans who have resigned uh, to either run for another office or for whatever. Some couple have joined the Biden administration. And so we've had some shuffling of the uh, committee assignments. And so ranking member of the Health and Human Services Committee is going to be good for me because I wanted to make my final push to be um, maternal and child health and the social determinants of of health, including increasing TANF and also affordable housing. So all that lays right there squarely in Health and Human Services. We are also going to, well, we're assuming that we're going to hear some more bad anti-abortion bills, and those will go through that committee. And so You know, Boulding wants a strong voice, and so I'm a strong voice, and so that's where I'm going to be. Uh, The bills that I'm going to be proposing are going to be similar to the ones that I've had in the past, although I do want to expand my truth in renting bill, which um, has uh, a requirement for transparency for fees when somebody rents an apartment. Now, the apartments are really expensive, but when you rent the apartment— they can add hundreds of dollars of fees on top of that rent. So maybe you say, oh, well, $1,200 a month, that seems like a lot, but I guess I can get it together. And then they add another 300 top on top of fees that you didn't know about until you get there to sign the lease. And so uh, I, I want to look at evictions and I want to beef up that Truth in Renting bill a lot because I, I want to help people keep food on, the he- food on their table and a roof over their heads, Um, Expansion of TANF is also a biggie, and I'm going to be working with Rebecca Rios on that.
0: um, TANF, um, could you just, you know, just for people who are listening that might not know what that is, what is that?
1: Yes, TANF is Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. And so it's what used to be called welfare. And so Arizona is one of the stingiest states in the country for TANF. I think our maximum per month for like a family of four is under $300. I mean, it's very low. And it is set, uh, it is uh, tagged at 36% of the 1992 poverty level. That's why it's so low. And it's capped, so it can't go up. And so my bill that I had in 2021 would have taken it to the 2010 poverty level and it would have increased the amount dramatically. It also would have increased it to the full five years allowable for the, um, for the, by the federal government. And so with that increase in the amount and increase in the five years, it would give families like seven or $800 a month in TANF, which would really help them you know, it would be like the pandemic unemployment. It would help people stay afloat and stay off the streets uh, in order to hopefully lift themselves out of poverty or maybe give them the time to get themselves through community college or something like that. And so I think it's very important. We have stingy policies that are forcing people out of their houses. And um, it's not fair. It's not good for any of us to allow people to live with disease and poverty. When we have the money
0: to fix it. (laughs) Well, exactly. You know, and I'm I'm really glad to hear that housing is one of your priorities because in my day job, housing issues are by far the most frustrating because I know that there's resources out there. It's just that we don't have a way of getting to them sometimes. And uh, it's... um, and uh, oh, I you know we'll get into my other, my my frustrations in general with that, but you know I, I think you know what most of them are, and you probably have the same ones I do. Um, so you're a member of the National Writers Union, um, and uh, even though you're an editor, and and you know writers always have to have some tension with their editors, and <laughs> you know. But um, could you talk a little bit about why you think it's important to be a union member?
1: Well, I grew up in a union household, and I remember one day I was sitting on the front porch with my dad, and this would have been in the early '70s, and and the ERA was probably you know uh, in the news then, you know, and he says, "Well, you think that women should get paid the same as men, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah." And he says, well, you know why they're not? And I said, why? And he says, because you don't fight for it. You settle. And I said, well, dad, I've never had the option to join a union,
0: but now I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and how much has being a, a union member informed your work as, as a state legislator?
1: Well, I I think it's uh, informed it quite a bit. I, I try to stay in contact with the unions, in fact, I'm supposed to have a meeting tomorrow with a few of them. Uh, and I, I think I bring a different voice. There's only a handful of people who are really strong union advocates in the Arizona legislature. And I think it's important to educate the legislators about what's going on. I mean, I've even had Democrats who kind of disunionism and it's like with the pandemic and everything that's uh, happened with the, the gig economy and people being stretched so thin, and now people quitting and rethinking their jobs, I think unions are on the rise. And it's very important. And I, it's very important to get the message out there that there are alternatives for people, that you don't necessarily have to be in a big corporation to be a union member.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that I've tried to talk to people about, too, because I've got Uh, A friend who will remain nameless, but he's very uh, um, radical in so many ways, but, you know, he'll criticize, you know, the UAW because look at how much those guys are getting paid and I've got a college degree and he doesn't see that what he's saying is kind of elitist for one thing, (laughs) you know, very elitist, but also almost beside the point, why shouldn't someone who, you know, just gets up and works with their hands, make a bucket full of money too, because I can't do what they do.
1: Right. Know? Right. And, you know, I saw that growing up because pretty much everybody in Lorain County was, was, had a dad who was working for the union. And if they didn't, then they had a dad who was wearing a suit and going to that factory. You know, I mean, I had, I had friends whose kids, whose uh, Dads were in management, but most of us had fathers who were, you know, worked for the Ford plant or the steel mills or the shipyards or through shovel where my dad was. And, you know, they were hardcore union members and working men. But and we had, you know, I grew up in a little, you know, it was a small house. But, you know, we always had paid vacations. We always had health insurance. I got my first eyeglasses from union eye care. So we were very well taken care of, although we lived very modestly. But, well, you know, and with the National Defense Student Loan, I went to college. My parents didn't go to college, but I went to college, and so did my brother. And so it was a way for the middle cat class to, to rise up. It's not just the union's PR story. It works, you know.
0: Yeah, it's always that that bumper sticker, and I wish that they'd make more of them that says, do you like weekends? You know, thank a union, you know, just sort of, I think, you know, but but one of the things that's funny that, that I think has hurt the movement is that uh, because so many people are not unionized now and so many businesses have taken advantage of that, that it's almost like you can't even tell people, well, you know, you get these vacation days. It's like, well, I don't actually, (laughs) you know, Um, but uh, that's the way it is. Well, and the
1: the way, the way they scam people, so they're not full time, you know, Getting back to the apartments, you know, i just moved into my apartment in Phoenix this week and I must have dealt with three or four different people at the apartment management uh, office in Phoenix because they're all part time and no, nobody knows what the other person did. You know, it's just uh, it's awful. You know, people shouldn't have to, you know, scramble from one job to the next.
0: Well, I, I, I wonder, too with the current situation and, and where, you know, whatever you want to call the folks that are running everything want it to be, how long they think that's sustainable. You know, uh, people can't afford houses, one the salaries we're paying, but we want to pay those salaries. Is this the only way we're going to make this work? And, um, you know, we're going to have part-time people at our, our jobs who don't have, either the inclination because of, you know, how we're treating them or the time to really learn the job. And I I just, you know, in some ways, I kind of wonder if the union movement's better for the folks of money too.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) or at least uh, the
0: the union movement, you know,
1: going, going back to my apartment experience, you know, they, I said, okay, I want a six month lease. They send me the lease electronically. I said, well, this is 12 months. Oh, okay. We'll change that. They sent it back. They sent the six month one, but another page still said 12 months. It's like, where you need an editor, you know? I mean, there were so many mistakes in the process. And again, you know, these are people who are all working part time. One year I met uh, a person at one of these property management buildings who was working at several different properties and trying to keep all those, you know, people and contracts and rent checks, rent checks straight. Is difficult.
0: Yeah. So, one last thing. I mean, you're you're the editor at a medical publication. Um, how much has that of that has been helpful for you in in the last couple of years of, of dealing with the current crisis, as far as as a legislator or as a person, even?
1: Well, it, it one of the things that I have to do with the American Journal of Medicine is that when I was managing editor is. I was the person who had to read every article in every magazine. So I learned a lot. I had already been in healthcare and medicine since the late 80s as a freelancer and then in public health, but it really gave me a lot of background. So on the health committee, like, you know, for example, I was talking to some lobbyists from the Arizona Medical Association earlier this week, and they were talking to me about a change in prescribing certain drugs. And I said, oh, no, no that's a bridge too far. And they're like, Oh, we're so glad you understand, (laughs) you know, and I said, I had to read every article for 20 years. And I got a lot of it still up here somewhere in my brain. And so yes, it's been very helpful in the legislature, because I can ferret out the BS a little easier and some of these very complicated medical issues.
0: Okay, cool. Well, thank you very much for speaking to me.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me.
0: Thank you, Pamela. And thank all of you for listening. I'm Ted Brzezinski. Words and Work has been a presentation of the National Writers Union Tucson chapter and Downtown Radio. See you next week.